As I said earlier, it's customary for us to make a distinction between the major prophets of the Old Testament and the minor prophets. The major prophets being Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, and then we have 12 minor prophets. And as I said, the distinction is not between the important and the unimportant. The only difference that we have here is between the size or length of the books of these prophets that bear their name. Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah are very large books, whereas the writings of the minor prophets are shorter. And we don't have time to cover all of the minor prophets, and so what I'm doing is simply giving you little vignettes. I hope to spark your interest to look more closely at the full substance of the information that is found in the works of the minor prophets, because anytime God puts His Word in a prophet's mouth and that that person becomes an agent of revelation and speaks the Word of God. There is nothing minor about that. And so I say that as we now look briefly at some of the other minor prophets. The first one I want to look at is the prophet Joel. Now, as we mentioned in the case of Amos, we talked about the motif of the day of the Lord which was a motif that runs as a tapestry throughout the Old Testament literature. In the second chapter of Joel, we get this content regarding the day of the Lord. Verse 1, Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain, and let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns, and the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. And here we're told the graphic terms of people suffering, writhing in pain, and all of the dreadful accompaniments of the earthquake and the tremblings of the heaven and the darkening of the sun and the moon and so on. And at the end of this awful description of the day of the Lord, there is a call to repentance in verse 12. Now says the Lord, turn to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments, and return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful. And then the prophet announces the promise of God to bring a latter rain that will refresh the land and cause new growth and new health and new prosperity. And so there is mixed with this dreadful image of judgment, the positive image of restoration and of glory. And it reaches its climax in chapter 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also... On my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, and the sun shall be turned into darkness, and so on, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now there's a prophecy in that second chapter of Joel that I think many of you may already be familiar with because it figures prominently in a crucial event that is recorded in the New Testament in the book of Acts. When the church is assembled to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, and on the day of Pentecost, suddenly there is a mighty rushing wind, and tongues of fire descend from heaven upon those who are gathered in that place, and they begin to speak in other tongues. And while people are observing what is going on here, the charge is leveled against the believers assembled that they must be drunk to be engaged in such bizarre behavior. And Peter rises and gives his famous address on the day of Pentecost and says, These are not drunken as you suppose, but this is that of which the prophet Joel spoke that God would pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. And then Peter quotes directly from this passage that at least this portion of the future prophecy of the coming of the day of the Lord in terms of the refreshment and the newness of life and power that will attend the day of the Lord's visitation is fulfilled here dramatically at the day of Pentecost. And we can look throughout the Minor Prophets and see other passages that have very significant importance for New Testament fulfillment. We think, for example, of the prophet Micah. And Micah is one of the smallest of the Minor Prophets, and there's not a lot of familiarity among the modern church with the work of Micah, but Micah has some very important things to say, not the least of which is his prophecy contained in the fifth chapter of the book that bears his name. Chapter 5 begins with these words, Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us, and they will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Again, we see this grim prophecy of destruction. But there is a however here. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who was in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. Every year at Christmas we hear some reference to the little town of Bethlehem apparently small and insignificant among the cities of the Jewish nation. And yet, out of this village will come the one whom God will anoint as his king. So often when I deal with the matter of adult education, 
and plunge into some of the heavier matters of systematic theology, I'll get this response from the congregation. I'll say, can't we just keep this simple? Uh, doesn't God honor a childlike faith? And I say, yes, but not a childish faith. And God calls us to be childlike in evil, but mature in our understanding. So sometimes the study of the things of God requires a rigorous use of our minds and a study in depth. But we live in a, in a consumer world that wants everything set forth in three easy lessons. And there's no way that we can take the whole substance of the Word of God and boil it down to three easy lessons. But there is one sense in which on one occasion, God in His mercy condescended to us to do just that. And we find the three easy lessons in the book of Micah. If we turn our attention to chapter 6, verse 8, this famous portion from Micah, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, whenever we have that sense of trying to get to the bottom line, what is the essential core of faith? What is it that God is most concerned about that is manifest in our lives? Again, what does the Lord require of you? And the passage answers it this way, first of all, to do justly. Now, he's not addressing himself here to administrators of justice in the law court exclusively. Certainly, they're contained within the purview of this. But again, we see the close link between the word justice and the word righteousness in the Old Testament, because justice is not determined by juridical precedent or political expediency. In Israel, justice is always defined in terms of righteousness. I remember being involved many years ago in the arena of labor management relations in Pittsburgh, and I was working with a man named Wayne Alderson, who was absolutely indefatigable in his desire to work with people who were estranged in the workplace. And I used to run around with him giving seminars in union halls and in Fortune 500 corporate headquarters, labor and management, working together in this arena. And I remember one time he dragged me halfway across the state of Pennsylvania for one of these seminars in a steel foundry. And it went all day and I was exhausted and we were driving home on the Pennsylvania Turnpike and it was like 2 o'clock in the morning and Wayne was driving. And I could see how tired he was. And I said, Wayne, why are you doing this? Now, that was a pointed question in the middle of the night when our defenses were down and he didn't have a microphone in front of him. The press wasn't there to record his words. So he didn't have to feel like he had to give some kind of heroic answer or altruistic answer to my question. I said, so why are you doing and he breathed a deep sigh of weariness. And he looked over at me and he said, because it's the right thing to do. It wasn't the popular thing to do. It wasn't the profitable thing to do. But it was the right thing to do. And frankly, his answer 
shamed me <laughs> because I was thinking to myself, why am I doing this? <laughs> I can't imagine why I'm doing this. But he says, because it's the right thing to do. And that's the first thing that God requires of us, that as much as is in us, to do the right thing. And righteousness is revealed to us throughout the Scripture, those things that God defines for us as the right thing. And so Micah says, what do you do? What does God require? That requires that you do justly, that you do righteousness, that you do the right thing. And then the second thing is that you love mercy. That's a bit confusing. And probably if you have five different translations of the text in your group, you'll get five different renderings of this word. Because the word that is used here is a word that is in Hebrew, and it is the word chesed. I've seen it translated many, many different ways in English. It's often translated by the word mercy, but the most common translation of it is by a phrase, or two words, steadfast love. I think the most accurate rendition of this phrase is to love loyally. Chaset is the term that is used in the scriptures again and again and again to describe the character of God's love for us. It's His covenant love. It is His faithful, loyal love to His people. His mercy flows out of His personal loyalty to His beloved. And so what Micah is saying here is that what God requires of us is not only to do what is right, but that our relationships in this world are to be marked by loyalty, by the kind of love that covers a multitude of sins, by a kind of love that in its nature is merciful, forbearing. In a sense, the whole of 1 Corinthians 13 is summarized by this word chesed, that this is the love of which the New Testament speaks the love that is faithful, the love that is kind, the love that perseveres. And finally, the third thing that Micah mentions is to walk humbly with thy God. At Ligonier, we have our little magazine, Table Talk, and if you know of Table Talk, you know that we constantly have those little portions at the bottom of the page called Quorum Deo. And the reason for that is that several years ago, one of our board members came up to me and said, R.C., what's the big idea? <laughs> I said, you know, it sounded like my mother with her hands on her head. What's the big idea? I said, what do you mean, what's the big idea? He says, I want to know, in a nutshell, the big idea of what you're trying to communicate in this teaching. And I said, well, if you want me to boil it down to one simple statement, it would be the Latin phrase, quorum Deo. He said, what's that? I said, that was a phrase that became very important to Luther and Calvin and to the magisterial reformers of the 16th century to encapsulate the essence of what they were teaching. It means literally before the face of God. And the concept is that as Christians, we are to live our entire lives as if we were acutely conscious of acting out our lives before the eyes of God, before His face, in His presence and that we are to do all things in subjection to His sovereignty and to His authority. That's why we use that phrase. 
And that's what Micah is saying. What does the Lord require of you? He requires that you love justice and righteousness, that you manifest a steadfast love, even as God does, a loyal love, and that you walk humbly before him in every aspect of your life. The prophet Habakkuk is one of my favorites. Habakkuk was a persistent fellow. He's kind of a mini Job in the New Testament. He begins with a statement of a burden. We read it in the beginning of chapter 1 of his book, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity, cause me to see trouble, for plundering and violence are before me, there's strife and contention, and so on. He's saying, the nation is falling apart. Pagans have taken over. How can you let these things happen? How can you allow the triumph of evil over righteousness? He cries out, oh God, you are too holy to even look at sin, and yet you seem to tolerate these calamities that are taking place. What's going on? So in chapter 2, he says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. You've heard of the watchtower. It's associated with Habakkuk. Habakkuk says, I've shaken my fist in the face of God. I've demanded an answer for a theodicy, for God to explain why he tolerates all this evil. And I'm going to climb up in my watchtower and I'm not going to move. <laughs> I'm going to be like somebody that sits on a telephone pole. And I'm going to hang out there until I get an answer from God. That's why I say this is a persistent fellow, Habakkuk. And finally God speaks and answers and says, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come and it will not tarry. Now this is what it is with the Word of God. We love to hear the promises of God, but when God is slow to fulfill the promises that He gives to His people, and when the Lord tarries, we become impatient and restless and contentious and at times even angry with God. And God says to Habakkuk, settle down. I have made the promise of my word. It may tarry, but it will surely come to pass. And then chapter 3, we read in verse 16 the reaction of Habakkuk to the word of God. When I heard, he said, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself. I love this description because it fits so perfectly the uniform description that people in the Old Testament have when they encounter the living God. He speaks of trembling in the presence of God, of his lips quivering. Have you ever seen a little child that was about to start to cry and was doing everything in their power to stop from crying and you knew that it was a losing battle because that bottom lip starts to twitch and starts to quiver and you know in just a moment the fountain is going to start gushing forth. Well, this is what he said happened to him. When God spoke, I trembled, my lips began to quiver and a sense of rottenness entered my bone. And then he speaks the statement 
that is quoted three times in the New Testament, but the just shall live by faith. That is, the righteous will live by trust. Get down out of your watchtower, Habakkuk, and trust me, is what God is saying. And finally, his hymn of faith in chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. This is the message of faith. Translated into modern terms, it would be saying something like this. Though my business fails completely, the stock market crashes, the economy is in ruins, the nation is conquered by foreign invaders... I lose my car, I lose my house, I lose everything. Nevertheless, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. For he has made my feet like the feet of deer and has caused me to walk in high places.